It's the peace of God. It's God breaking through the chaos, bringing shalom and wholeness. It's the peace of God that will guard, stand sentinel over the breaches of your heart, that in his strength, that is the only way we can overcome as he marches to and fro around our heart as we give it to him fully and completely. But every day we need to start by saying, okay, it's yours. My life is yours. And I see the cracks coming in, but God, I'm turning to you again to guard my heart with the peace of you. Let me live this truth here and now. Well, this morning we are stepping into a pretty severe passage um, and I don't, I don't want to read it because it's so severe. So I'm going to invite somebody else to. So um, Sissy Maxwell is going to come up and read our passage this morning. Um, Sissy and Kevin are just a vital part of our community here and serve in many capacities. And so thanks for coming and reading with us. Would you stand with me as we read this morning? We'll be reading from Acts 5. Okay. All right. This is the story of Ananias and Sapphira. And it's Acts 5, 1 through 11. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposable disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. And after an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Uh, as you're taking a seat, we're going to just go ahead and have the ushers come forward now. We're going to take an offering. <laughs> However you feel led after hearing that passage, may the Lord speak to you. We, uh, we do come to a very severe passage, and it contains a, a very severe truth. And there's so much in here that we would like to just kind of jump beyond. We've been following the early church, the life, the excitement, the addition of people coming to know Jesus. And now we come to this strange moment that seems like a, a deep setback. And there's a, a harshness to it. And the, the consequences seem a little oversized for the action. 
And yet the severe truth of this matter is that a divided heart leads to destruction. Jesus reminds us that we can't serve two masters. It's why we go back to Proverbs 4.23 so often. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flows the springs of life. See, what we recognize in this passage is that the smallest breach in our hearts can have the greatest of consequences. We feel all of the pressures that come from without, but often it's the battle lost within that carries with it the, the severity of a truth that can't be ignored. As I was reading through this passage, uh, I was taken back to uh, the Battle of Thermophili, where the Spartans took on the Persian Empire. And so much of it is historical, so much of it has become legendary, because with smaller numbers, the Spartans held off this massive Persian Empire because they were smart and they were strategic and they found a small stretch of land that they could come together and hold the ground on. And that, that worked for a while until there was a, a breach in the wall, a path was found around and suddenly the enemy that was on the outside was now on the inside and there was no hope. See, the strength of the Spartans was undone because of a breach within. And so the question for us as we step into this passage with all of its severity, when we step in knowing that a divided heart can lead to destruction, we start to ask ourselves, how do we stand a chance? How can we overcome the onslaught of, of pressures and voices and ideologies that come our way, the idols that want to sneak into our heart and divide and take over? How do we stand up against this? Because all of these things want to breach our heart. They want to make their way in there. They want to shape us and, and mold us, distract us and paralyze us. And so today we're going to look at this passage and we're going to look at the good of it, the bad of it, and then the grace of it. And we're going to learn from the early church and what happens here. But in order for us to better understand what's happening in chapter 5, we do have to go back just a little ways. And so turn with me to Acts chapter 4. We're going to start at, at 432. Because this passage this morning, we're going we're gonna to cover a lot of ground. We're going to go from 432 all the way up to 516, and there's a reason for that. Because this whole section really is best served as, as a sandwich. And the flavors need to come together, and if we just take one part, we're going to miss the full effect of what's happening here. So I want to start with the good. Beginning in verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of the lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet." And it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus, Joseph, who is also called, the apostle, called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. And so what we step into is another summary of Luke. He's going to give us these touch points throughout this, this book that we're reading. 
He's going to tell us, this is what happened, and now let me summarize it for you. Again, what's he highlighting in this moment? Well, they have one heart and one soul. They were together. They were unified. That's what we see in the early church, that they were under the banner and following the way of Jesus together, that they held that with a deep severity, that they fought for that among one another. And not only were they united, but they were holding all things in common. They were meeting one another's needs. The apostles were proclaiming the testimony of Jesus' resurrection and the truth of who he was with great power. There was great grace upon all of them. And we start to see this this forming of a community that almost feels utopian. Everything seems to be going just right. People have property. They they owned individual property and land. And and when they saw the need of another, they said, well, I can can get rid of a little bit of this. I can hold what I have open-handed before you so that the needs of this person can be met. And we see this taking shape here in this moment. And it's important for us to understand, too, that this wasn't the the early start of of communism or communalism that they were dealing with. No, they had individual things that, that God had blessed them with, and they were seeking to steward that by laying that at the apostles' feet, coming before the the authority of the church and say, okay, we're going to put this at your feet. We're going to trust you to do with this, to meet the needs of those who have them. And so this beautiful picture of one heart, one soul, the church coming together in one accord, taking care of one another, loving one another well in tangible ways. I know in my own life, Rachel and I and our family, we've experienced this by by people meeting our needs. We've experienced this in this church by others coming around and meeting the needs of people that can't meet them on their own and the church showing up as the church in powerful ways. Again, all under the banner of Jesus. And as Luke is telling us this, he's going to give us a specific example of someone who does this well. This is the good that we want to see coming out of this passage. We want to hold tight to this. Because we're introduced to somebody who we're going to find out more about later on. Luke's introducing us here to him. We're going to hear about his ministry and all that he does. But for right now, he just introduces us to Joseph who is also called by the apostles Barnabas, who is a son of encouragement. Wherever Barnabas was showing up, he was bringing life with him. People liked to have Barnabas around. He was a Levite. He was a native of Cyprus. Tuck that away when we are looking later in the book of Acts. That's going to be important. And what we are told here is that he sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and he laid it at the apostles' feet. Remember, We're looking at the good, we're going to see the bad, and we're going to look at the grace. And this is the moment that we want to delight in. This is the good. This is the brioche bun on top of the hamburger. It's buttery and savory, and you love it, and it's soft, and it's good, and I'm hungry and ready for lunch. And so Joseph, known as Barnabas, the son of encouragement, he takes what he has, sees the need of another, and he he sells his land and he comes before the apostles and he just lays it at their feet. He says, however, however you want to steward this, however you want to use this, this is a free will offering and this is important for us to understand. There's nothing compelled here, no compulsion, no force here. He is coming of his own free will, offering this up out of his own free will, out of the overflow of what God's shaping in his heart. And so we see Barnabas and we see this gracious person. We see that he, he really kind of looks the part of a follower of Jesus because God is transforming his heart. And so this is a, a good example to follow after. 
See, because when the gospel begins to change us, it simply becomes the song of our life. Our bodies are our instruments, and our actions are our melodies. And for Barnabas, he was singing the song of the goodness that he had received from Christ by giving back from what he had been given to help those around him. But the question for us is, how do we practice this? How do we see this goodness, this good action, and how do we begin to incorporate that into our lives? Well, the the best way to practice anything is to do it, to try it, to give of yourself. That could be time, that could be monetarily, that could be serving, it could be stepping in and trying something, giving of yourself for another and for the good of another, not just for the gain that you'll get from that moment. I remember uh, a few years back, I was talking with a friend of mine who I'd got to know over the years. His name was Alan. And Alan was kind of just this like wonderful mystery tour of a man. He was homeless and our conversations were always varied, but, but God really used him in some, some ways in my life to, to encourage me, to, to teach me, to give me patience, all sorts of stuff uh, with Alan. But we navigated a lot of things together. And I remember one day Alan came and he said, you know what, uh, my, bike, my bike got busted and I got to get a new one. And for Alan, that was like life or death. That's the way he got around. That was his transportation. And he would ride all over, miles around to kind of live the life that he did. And so he's like, I've got no bike. Do you know anybody? Do you know anyone that maybe could help me with that? Or do you know someone that could do that? And I remember him talking to me about this. And as I'm listening to him talk about the bike that he needs, all I'm picturing in my own head is the bike that's just hanging in my garage that just sits there. And the Lord was like, he doesn't need someone. He, he needs you. And so I said, oh, okay, you know what, Alan? I tell you what, tomorrow I'm going to bring my bike and you're set. And so I did. I brought my bike down to him and he was riding it around. And I remember every time I'd see Alan riding around town, I'd be like, oh, look, Alan's on my bike. That's so cool that Alan's riding my bike. I love that Alan's riding my bike. That's so awesome. And a couple months went by and I remember Alan came in and he said, oh, you know, there's something that I, I there's a part that I need to get. Uh, to, to kind of improve this. But in order to do that, I'm going to need to sell some things off the bike. And in my head, no joke, I'm like, well, that's, that's kind of my bike, Alan. <laughs> you know? And I realized in that moment, I had never really given him the bike. That was still hanging on to it in some weird way. And, and, and so I just, in that moment, it was like the Lord just spoke. And I was like, okay, you know what, Alan? It's your bike. You can do whatever you want with it. It's it's yours. And it's this reminder to me of the strange way that things can have a hold on us. That we can look like we're being generous and yet we're still using that to either hold that over someone or it still has a hold on us in some way, shape, or form of what we're owed because of what we've given. See, Barnabas was coming and practicing the overflow of what God was doing in his life. And so he just laid before the apostles the proceeds of what he had just sold. He's an example of giving of ourselves, and we'll see that he continues to live this out. And so, so here's my question for this. As we're looking at the good, here's my question for you to think through. Where are you giving of yourself? Where are you giving of yourself? And if you don't have an immediate answer here, if you can't really think of anything, you're racking your brain, then maybe where is God inviting you in to start giving of yourself? 
Allow him to speak to you. Allow him to use you. Come open-handed before him with the gifts, talents, abilities that you have and say, okay, Lord, I don't want to just bury this in the sand. I want it to be used for your good. So where are you giving of yourself? That's the good part. We got through that pretty quick. Now we're coming to the bad, right? This is like the haggis in the middle of the sandwich that nobody really knows what it is or what's going on and doesn't want to touch it. But this is where we find ourselves. Acts 5.1. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and with his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. So here we step into Ananias and Sapphira. They're part of the community. They're seeing what's going on around. People are selling off property. They're meeting the needs of others. And so we're told that they have a piece of property. They sell it. They contrive together. And they're like, hey, we're going to go ahead and, and we'll give some of it, but not all of it. They knew this. The, the wife had knowledge of it. They were doing this together. She saw the, the checking account. She knew how much had come in, how much was going out. There was no surprises here. And they decided to hold it back. But what do they do? They come and they lay it at the apostles' feet. Right? In this moment, what, what do they look like? Well, they, they look like they're just so generous. But unbeknownst to everyone else, there's something cancerous in them. They look the part, but their heart is not in it. And they're coming for all the applause, but inwardly they're this, this, this lost cause. And this is the severe truth, that a divided heart leads to destruction. It distracts us and it pulls us away and it has severe consequences. And not just personally, not just personally, but communally. And so as this is beginning to unfold, we see Peter is going to step in because he sees no space for this. There is no room for this kind of action. There's no toying with what's happening here within the community of God. Peter recognizes it. We, we can only uh, assume that God has given him the ability to see what's fully happening in this moment. And Peter says, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. So Peter confronts him. He's just pointing some things out. Scananias, that breach in your heart, you allowed Satan in and he's taking over where, where you are meant to flourish in a relationship with the spirit coursing through you. You have quenched that by allowing Satan, the destroyer, to guide you. Why have you done this? Wasn't the property yours? Wasn't all that so you made the choice? You knew what you were doing. Why are you pretending like you are so generous? Why are you doing this, but you're really holding back from, from what God has given you and what God has given you to give? You had choice in this. It wasn't forced upon you. You have cho choice and you've chosen poorly. Why have you plotted in such a way? And he reminds him, he, Satan has filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit. Ananias, you've not lied to men, you've lied to God. 
See, Peter understood what was at stake here. It was more than just keeping back a little extra for themselves. It was more than just misappropriating funds. It was more than theft. It was a breach in Ananias' heart. And that breach brought a breach into the community of God. And it was opening up not just the individual to destruction, but the community to the effects of what would come out of that. Haven't we all seen this? One person's actions, one person's mistakes, one person's choice has an effect that ripples throughout the community. I remember one time talking with someone about this very idea. And they were trying so hard to convince me. They said, you know, I can make my own choices. And I said, absolutely. They said, and my choices have no effect on the people around me. And I said, well, that I disagree with. And I watched as this person started just to spiral in their life. And the choices that they said they were just taking on as an individual, I watched as their family was dragged down by the burdens of that and the grief that they experienced in walking alongside that person. No, your sins are not just personal. There's a communal aspect to that. And Peter saw this. See, and you're lying to men, yes, you're lying to God, and you're, you're bringing that into our community. That's not who we are. That's not what we're about, Ananias. And so he called it out. He didn't dance around it. He was lying to God. And this lie would set a precedent that Peter did not want to hold in the community. We will not tolerate that. For this lie will bring about destruction. Destruction. And when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and he breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. See, Ananias hears these words. He hears the condemnation. He feels the confrontation. He knows what's bearing down upon him. And all we are told is that he fell down and he breathed his last. He died. The breach of his heart led to his death. He had given Satan space where only the Lord was to be, and instead of experiencing life alongside the Lord, he's experiencing death. Now, let's just step back for a second, because I know we read this, and it's like, this is a little harsh. Right? We start to think in our own mind. I mean, he, so he rounded some figures. Right? He moved some things around. It's not, it's not that big a deal. But here's what it's important to catch what Peter said in this moment. He said, you lied to the Spirit, you lied to God. You lied to God. This is what's at stake. Rebellion's what is at stake, and Peter's making it clear. And just, just to riff here for a second on, on the theological implications of this passage, because they're pretty profound. We often talk around the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, and the, the beauty of the three in one, eternally existent in three persons, each distinct from each other, each fully God. And when we think about that, we try and explain that. Sometimes we're like, well, the Trinity's easy. It's just, right? We feel that tension in our brain. But what we see here and what Peter is making clear is if you lie to the Holy Spirit, you are lying to God. You see that he equates the two? They are one in the same. So if you lie to the Spirit, you are lying to God. You are lying to the Almighty. 
But the Holy Spirit is part of the triune God. And Ananias' actions have betrayed his allegiance to God. He tried to pull one over on him. And in this moment, his actions lead to death, and he's swiftly buried. Now, in, in the ancient Near East, the burial did come pretty quickly, but there was an allowance for mourning and, and sadness. Here we see none of that because this man stands condemned. And when someone stood condemned, they just buried them as quickly as possible. They come in, they take him out. His wife's not even aware of what's going on. She's not going to find out until three hours later. So there's a whole lot taking place in this passage. So three hours later, his wife, Sapphira, whose name means beautiful, comes in knowing nothing about what had happened. And Peter has a conversation with her. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Here again, Peter confronts. And in his confrontation, he gives Sapphira a chance to repent, a chance to come clean. Tell me, how, how, much, how much money came in? And there was a moment there where she could have said, you know what? We lied, there was more. We held back. But instead, what we see her do is what we so often do when we become entrenched in the lie. We just dig our heels in and we're like, well, I'm just gonna ride this one out. And she refuses to say anything different. And she misses this opportunity and sticks to her story. And in so doing, Peter's like, the, the very ones who just carried your husband out are, are here to carry you. Now, how many of you parents have ever experienced this interaction in real time with your kids where you know they're lying? And they know you know they're lying, right? But they just hang on anyway. They just keep digging that hole. They're like, I'm not going to abandon this. You know, just tell me. You know, if you tell me the truth now, you're still, you're still in trouble, but it's not going to be as bad. They're like, no, no. And just that continual denial. There's something in us, and I, I love how Martin Lloyd-Jones reminds us of this. He says this, you will never make yourself feel that you are a sinner because there is a mechanism in you as a result of sin that will always be defending you against every accusation. We are all on very good terms with ourselves. And we can always put up a good case for ourselves. Even if we try to make ourselves feel that we are sinners, we will never do it. There's only one way to know that we are sinners, and that is to have some dim, glimmering conception of God. Until we have that dim, glimmering conception of the awesomeness of God, we will continue to try and fool ourselves, much like Ananias and Sapphira did. And in this moment, Sapphira takes this glimmering conception of God, and suddenly she feels it in full force as she's confronted with the full weight of her sin. And verse 10 tells us that immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. Where did she fall down? at the foot of Peter the apostle. The very space that they were to come and lay their offerings before, now she's laying down her life before him. 
because she allowed the breach in her heart to distract her from the way in which God had invited her to live. And when the young men came in, they found her dead and they carried her out and they buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Now, if you want to start getting some people's attention in church, if you want some great fear and some great awe to come upon the whole church, just have people start dying in the middle of service, right? Everyone's going to start listening up real quick. And for any of you who are here and you're like, I'm new, I don't know what I walked into. You're like, if you're looking for volunteers, I'm not it today. Like, I don't want to be involved. There's a lot happening here. And we read this, and there's still, there's still a part of us that's like, ah, I understand what they did. I understand the deception. I understand the lies. But still, I mean, they just both, gone. But why did, why did God include this in our scripture to begin with? As Luke was writing through the, the early accounts of the, the book of Acts and all that the, the early church was doing, he could have really chosen just like the best stories and left those in. He could have just glossed over this whole thing. He'd be like, they were all together and Barnabas came and laid everything before their feet. And it was wonderful, right? But that's not what we have. God's directing us, he's guiding us, he's, he's giving us his word. All scripture is his word. And so we have to ask ourselves, what, what's he pointing us towards? Well, as one author says, Luke sees this story not just as being about human greed and duplicitous actions, but about an invasion of the community of the spirit by the powers of darkness, by means of Ananias. And he's Read that last part. Well, let me just read the whole thing. Because this one, when it settles, you go, oh. Luke sees the story not just being about the human greed and duplicitous actions. We like to stop there. But about an invasion of the community of the spirit by the powers of darkness, by means of Ananias. Ananias is being used to attack the community of God, the community of the spirit. Not from without, but from within. This is why the consequences were so severe. This is why the cost was so great, because the wages of sin is death. And we forget this. We become numb to this, because we understand that the grace of God is so uh, powerful and overwhelming, but we can become complacent even in that truth, and we can gloss over it. And here we're confronted with it, and we have to face it head on, whether we like it or not. It's there. And in this moment, Ananias and Sapphira, they take us back to the very beginning of scripture in that garden where Adam and Eve had nothing between them and God and they were just enjoying relationship with him and the serpent comes in and begins to question God and in turn Adam and Eve begin to question God and say, I think he's holding out on us. It's the conversation that we've been having ever since as human beings. I think God doesn't have my best interest in mind and he's holding out of us on us so I gotta take care of mine. It's why when the people of God were moving through and, and God said, I'm going to take care of this. I'm going to bring the walls of the cities down, but you give me the gold. You put that in my house that's consecrated to me. And Achan's like, God won't mind if I just hide a little bit in my tent. It's not going to have any repercussions. It's not a big deal. 
And yet we see in Joshua 7 the severity of the consequences of sin. Again, we think it's buried, but God is not blind to our actions or what we are doing. We may be able to fool some people around us, but he sees what we are doing. And so Ananias and Sapphira join in the path that so many have taken, that have sought their own way, their own kingdom, their own desire, their own wants, their own thoughts. And so as we hear this, and we understand the wrestle, the war that wages within us, we've got to take some inventory on ourselves, don't we? And so here's my question for you as we read through this. Where are your weak spots? Where are your weak spots? Where are you prone to wander? Where are you prone to drift? When all the pressures from without just seem too much, what creeps in your heart from within? What door is Satan trying to crack open? See, sometimes you're like, I don't even want to talk about this. No, we need, to, we need to call that out. We need to say, Lord, I know I'm weak here, and I need your strength. I need you to come and, and guard this for me because I cannot do it in my own strength. So it's important to acknowledge where are our weak spots? Where are those things that we, we continue to hang on to and pretend like we're hiding from, from anyone, let alone God? See, a divided heart leads to destruction. And what we witness in this passage is a severe truth in the life of Ananias and Sapphira, which led to a severe consequence. But if you remember, we're not all the way through our sandwich. We hit the brioche bun, we hit the bitter middle, and we still have the final section of seeing the good, seeing the bad, and now we look to the grace. I want to read this whole section because it will give us a, a runway to, to conclude with. Beginning in verse 12. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles and they were all together in Solomon's portico. They were up in the temple mount and none of the rest dared to join them but the people held them in high esteem. People are a little afraid of the apostles at this moment but they held them in high esteem. And more than ever, now hear that part, Verse 14, and more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets, laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. And the people also gathered from towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. More and more were coming to the Lord. More and more were experiencing the healing power and being freed from their afflictions. Now, we would hear that previous story and we would think that the account of Ananias and Sapphira would have everyone fleeing, but what Peter was doing was saying, what we have here is so precious we can't let any breach in. And God and his grace protected the rest of the community from what was happening so that more and more could come to know the hope that is found only in him. See, the power of darkness was trying to find a way in, but the darkness cannot overcome the light. And we see that in this moment. And instead, God shows himself merciful, exposing the sin, not allowing it to linger, but drawing a quick resolution. Now, it may seem odd in light of what we're reading, but do you know what Ananias' name means? 
God is merciful. We read his story and we're like, really? Really? Well, where was the mercy of God in this? I can tell you where I find the mercy of God in this moment. I find the mercy found in our paying attention to these actions and the severity of the consequences that are before us, learning from these mistakes, these distractions that want to weasel their way into our hearts. They do, and they've got their hooks in there. So I see the mercy of God reminding us in this moment that we are all flawed, that we all have moments where we can open our heart to the wrong influences. So we need to pay attention. And we need to understand that the mercy is found in the severe grace of God, which can cover over a multitude of sins that can bring life where once we were only experiencing death. And what we see is that this strange story of Ananias and Sapphira is not what became, uh, the early church became known by. This is, what they, this is not what they were defined by. No, the movement of God continues on, even still today. But it highlights the severe truth that a divided heart leads to destruction. So how do we remain vigilant? How do we remain watchful over our hearts? Well, I think before we can be vigilant, before we can bring those things before the Lord, we first need to trust his grace. We need to trust his goodness that we can expose those parts of ourselves that we want no one else to see. We can bring that before him and his grace is sufficient for us. And when we can do that, we can allow him access to our hearts and he can begin to shape it so that from it flows the springs of life. So my question for you on this is where is grace shaping you? Where are you allowing the grace of God into your cold, dead heart? <laughs> and I know that sounds harsh, but we all have those spots that we need to have him bring to life once again, and we need to expose them to him. So where are we allowing his grace to reframe us and reshape us and to build within us? See, I started with that idea of the battle of Thermopylae. And it was lost because of a breach, a path that was found to get on the inside to overcome the strength of the Spartans. The, 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 the battle was brought to the inside. And I think what this reminds us is in this moment, Ananias and Sapphira, they welcomed the enemy into their heart. And in turn, they brought darkness into the kingdom community. Their divided hearts led to death. But that is not the end of the story. The severe truth with severe consequences, it leads us to a severe grace that God has not given up on us yet. But the enemy hasn't given up on coming after us either. I love how John Stott says this. He says, as we have now seen, if the devil's first tactic was to destroy the church by force from without, his second was to destroy it by falsehood from within. He has not given up the attempt, whether by the hypocrisy of those who profess but do not practice or by the stubbornness of those who sin but do not repent. The church must preserve in vigilance. We must be watchful. 
We must be attentive. We must be looking to the Lord in all things. Because this severe truth with these severe consequences require the severe grace of God to overcome. And it's not something that we can just cling to once a week. It's not something that we come to an event and and glean from just on Sundays. This has to be a proactive battle that we live each and every day. If we have breath in our lungs, we battle. We battle to keep our hearts set on Christ. And we practice giving of ourselves for the good of others and to the glory of God. We acknowledge our weaknesses and we ask for his strength and we allow the grace of God to shape us as individuals and as a community. See, I, I think so often we want to we skip a step. We want to jump ahead to shaping and affecting our culture and shifting our communities and our nation. And that's a good endeavor so don't, don't hear me saying don't pursue that. That's a good endeavor. And I think right now that conversation is one that we're all feeling in different ways. Is we're like, Lord, what are you doing? But before we can jump to that level, we have to allow the gospel to shape our own hearts as individuals. See, too often we sound the alarm, but we refuse to heed that advice in our own lives. We long for a culture of truth and justice and humility and grace, mercy and peace. We long for others to live with integrity. That is a good longing. That's something we should absolutely pray for. But before we jump there, let's allow that truth to shape who we are as individuals and let that transform our everyday interactions. We must allow the severe grace of God to control our lives. And we must come before him every day, drinking deeply from the fountain of life that is found only in him. If you're following along in our dwell reading at all, you know we were in Philippians this week, and I, and I love what Paul was speaking to them. Because he reminds us that it's the peace of God that will what? Guard your heart It's the peace of God. It's God breaking through the chaos, bringing shalom and wholeness. It's the peace of God that will guard, stand sentinel over the breaches of your heart, that in his strength, that is the only way we can overcome as he marches to and fro around our heart as we give it to him fully and completely. But every day we need to start by saying, okay, it's yours. My life is yours. And I see the cracks coming in, but God, I'm turning to you again to guard my heart with the peace of you. Let me live this truth here and now. He meets us in our weakness and he comes to the breach. He mends the divide. And here's what I find so encouraging because we see it in the life of the early church. That if each of us in this room just started there, if we began there, And we allowed God to take control of our hearts, our actions, our thoughts, our words. And then as one heart and one soul, we as a community under the banner of Jesus started to live that out and practice that together. 
Well, this wouldn't just become a safe haven that people could retreat to. No, this would become a missional outpost that when we leave this place, the kingdom is with us as we move forward in his strength, and it's a launching point. But that truth starts in your heart when you give it to the Lord. It starts in my heart when I turn it over to him, and it moves from me to we, from us to our towns and to the ends of the earth as we live the gospel truth out in all ways. So my prayer for us is that the severe truth of God's severe grace would meet each and every one of us here today. Amen? You pray with me. Father, as we come before you in these moments, and a passage that pushes hard on the severity of sin. Lord, would we acknowledge our deep need for you. And God, I pray for anyone in this room who is is wrestling, who is carrying something right now that feels like it is too great to overcome. Lord, would they turn that over to you? Would they trust that you can meet them, that you can meet them in the breach, you can meet them in the divide, you can meet them in their weakness and provide strength, that you can provide forgiveness, Father. For each of us, God, would we be willing to give of ourselves and not to our own glory, but to yours, just as we pattern ourselves after the way in which you lived, Jesus. And Lord, where we know we are weak, Would we pay attention? Would we be vigilant? Would we give that weakness over to you and ask for your strength to carry through? And Father, would we allow your grace to shape us, to mold us, and to define us as individuals, as your people, as a community? For Jesus, you are God with us, Emmanuel, God with us who meets us in our pain, who meets us in our brokenness and brings life. To you be all glory forever and ever and ever. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.